you have a copy of God's Word, you can meet me in 1 John. We're starting a new sermon series that's seven weeks, and uh, we're going through our seven values as a church. You see them right here on the side of uh, the stage, and um, it'll be a little different because, as you can see under each value, there's two verses, and so we'll be looking at the verses. What is the, what is the uh, value, and what is the biblical uh, validation, the biblical scriptures for that value? And uh, the first value that we'll be focused on this week is the, that we are a Christ-centered and Bible-teaching culture church. That, that's the culture here. But here's what I want to protect your heart from. I don't want you to feel like, man, this is some presentation that the elders of the church is doing, and so you need to sit back and evaluate, like, oh, that's good. I agree with that. I want to protect you from that. I want you to search your own heart and say, Lord, is this me? Lord, is my life truly Christ-centered? Is my life saturated with your, with your word? Because a church will only be a Christ-centered church, a Bible-teaching church, if the people are that way. I always try to tell people, you can only be, you know, you only can put on a mask for so long. When pressure comes, who you really are will spill out of you. And so please guard your heart from seeing this as a presentation. I want to exhort you to live a Christ-centered, Bible-saturated life. And I want to look at the two passages that we have here, John 14.6 and 2 Timothy 3.16. But I, I, know the, I know we were just prayed for, but I personally just want, to, I want to pray for you, and I want to just pray for our time real quick. Can I do that? You just bow your heads in a word of prayer. I really wanted to seek the Lord that he would really grip our hearts. Lord, you are so great. And so I just ask that this morning you would show yourself great. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 14.6. John 14.6. And when we talk about what does it mean, the first half, to be Christ-centered, what does that mean that you should be Christ-centered, that we as a collective body should be Christ-centered? Well, there's some principles that we learn about being a Christ follower in John 14.6. And here's the first principle. Jot this down. All Christians are worship leaders. That's a biblical principle and the essence of what it means to be Christ-centered. All Christians are worshipers and worship leaders. Where do you get that from? In John uh, 14, 6, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, just a quick summary. At this point, his disciples are confused. They're anxious. Jesus is leaving, and they don't know where he's going or how he's going to get there. This is known, this section is known as the farewell discourse. It starts in John 13, and it moves on to about 17, to where Jesus is finally saying, hey, y'all, I'm about to leave. I'm about to bounce goodbye. I'm going to the cross. But it doesn't make any sense to them. And so they like, they don't know where he's going, and they don't know how he's going to get there. And Jesus' answer to them is this, I am the destination. And I am the way to the destination. This is more than just, I am the way for you to get to heaven. This is, you know, what we think of, what people think in the world is, well, we're all climbing the same mountain. No, we're not. What Jesus just said is, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except by me. So salvation is only through Christ. But even in this passage when Jesus says, I am the way, it's not just the way to salvation. It's the way to peace, the way to joy, the way to freedom. In the midst of your addiction, 
He is the way to everything that is true, right, and good. Jesus is the way to everything that our hearts have longed for. Your soul that has been thirsty. You feeling thirsty today? Dry? Yeah, you might dabble in this, dabble in that, but you feel thirsty again. Remember when Jesus told the woman at the well, I'll give you water and you'll never thirst again. It's like, Jesus, my, I, my soul is thirsty. He says, well, I'm the way. I'm the only way to get your soul, uh, your soul in the quench of your soul, uh, get your thirst quenched. The great lie of sin is that our heart can be fully satisfied and free without abiding in him or needing him. This is why we turn to sin over and over repeatedly, seeking freedom and comfort only to feel empty in the end. What you dabble in this week that made you feel empty when you was done? What did you look at? What did you watch? What did you eat? What did you do? When you examine it, most Christians, as Christians, we struggle to live a Christ-centered life because he's not truly who we live for. He's the one who saves us, but not the one who we live for. This has been like that since the church started. Paul said to the church in Rome, in Romans 12:1, he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Giving yourself completely over to him. That's Christ-centered. A church won't be Christ-centered if the people that come there and attend and gather together, if they can't say he's the motivation for everything. You have to give yourself. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Your marriage struggling right now is, is tense. I am the way. You don't know how to navigate your finances. I am the way. Your motive's not pure. I am the way. Living a Christ-centered life is not something you try to do harder, beloved. I know you hear that and you leave church. You're like, all right, I got to try harder this week to live for Christ. No, Jesus said just die to yourself. Deny yourself. It's not just so I can deny myself so I can serve him. It's deny myself, period, so I can live for him. Living a Christ-centered life is not about something you try harder to do. It's an outpouring of your identity. And when Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Either you believe that you died or you don't. Either you believe that everything now is Christ living through you or it's not. And what we happen is we say, well, Jesus forgives me of my sins and I'm going to heaven, but you still live yourself. And so the Christ in the life is everything now is motivated by him. Let me ask you an honest question. What is your purpose in life? Why are you breathing right now? Why do you get up out of bed today? And maybe depression got you asking that question. What's the purpose? What's the point with my life? Why do you exist? I want you to finish this question. Here it is on the screen. You, you finish this right now. My purpose in life is to, what would you say? I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. Finish the sentence. My purpose in life is to, you'd be surprised how many people have been walking with Jesus for 30 years, never processed that. We all have the same answer. I have it for you here on the screen. My purpose 
is to glorify and enjoy Jesus and help others do the same. That is why you exist. You exist to glorify him, to enjoy him, and help other people do the same. That's why you're here. Let's break it down real quick. I have it for you. What do you mean by glorify? It means he gets the credit. That's what glorify means. It means you get all the credit. So it means that you live your life in such a way that he's the one who gets the credit for everything. If you can't say that, life is not Christ-centered. It's me-centered with asking him to bless it. Glorify him and enjoy him. What does that mean? Most satisfying. Sin is saying this is more satisfying than him. That's what happened in the garden. Eve, this is more satisfying than the presence of God. Adam, this is more satisfying than the presence of God. The struggle with sin is to say, man, Lord, I want you to fill me so that you would satisfy my soul so I don't have to reach for that. I don't have to respond that way. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said you will never thirst again. Contentment is one of the words you rarely hear in church. Ever. We're never content because we're never satisfied. So we want to give him the credit and we want him to satisfy our hearts and help others do the same. That's what it means to be Christ-centered. Now maybe you say, well, Pastor John, my purpose is to be a school teacher. I've always done that since I was a kid. No, your calling is to be a school teacher. Your purpose is to glorify and enjoy Jesus as you help others do, your, do the same. Calling is what you do. Purpose is why you do it. We put our identity in our calling. Don't confuse your calling with your purpose. You might be called to be married, but it doesn't mean you understand the purpose of marriage and why marriage exists. You can have two Christians together. And just because you're Christians doesn't mean your marriage is Christ-centered. Doesn't mean your finances is Christ-centered. You go to Bible study all you want. It's how you live. It's application. Christians, everything I'm saying, you already know. I'm not saying nothing to you new. Peter says, I want to stir you up by the way of reminder. The problem with Christians isn't knowledge and information, it's application. That's why everybody loves Bible study but hates evangelism. Because you got to apply to Bible study. I'm not showing up to that. Being a Christ follower is more than your sins being forgiven. It's the core identity of who you are. You won't always be a school teacher. You won't always be a police officer. You won't always be a construction worker or an accountant. You won't always be a medical doctor or a web designer or a sales rep. But you always will be called to glorify him and enjoy him and help others do the same. That's why we say every Christian is both a worshiper and a worship leader. You're either pointing people to Jesus, the way, or pointing, him, pointing people away from him. You know that your life and identity is centered in Christ when he begins to shape the decisions you make and the motives for your decisions that you make. Paul talked about this all the time. You see it in Scripture. Colossians 3.17 says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's a litmus test. If I can't do this in Jesus' name, I shouldn't do it. Remember a godly man who taught me evangelism, who's with the Lord today, Brother Harry Ruff. At the church in Philadelphia, he led what we called the Soul Warriors. We would go out on Wednesday nights and Friday nights from 12 of midnight to 3 a.m. 
I remember one time he gave me wisdom. He said, John, if you can't ask God to bless it, don't do it. Stuck with me ever since. That's the Christ-centered life. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you helping your neighbor move? Why are you cleaning your friend's house who's struggling right now and they've been having the kids all week? Why are you doing that? So you can feel affirmed and get more followers on the gram? Or because you actually want to show them the love of Christ and say, I come with this in the name of Jesus. We love to serve everybody and deep inside we want the glory for it. No. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All that you do, do it in the name of Jesus and for his glory. We love to pray in the name of Jesus, but we don't live in the name of Jesus or for the name of Jesus. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord, not for men. That's a perfect verse for when you go to work. Whatever you do, work as for the Lord. I know your boss get on your nerves. But why do you show up on time when everybody comes in late? Why do you tell the truth when everybody else cuts the corner? Why do you still serve when you know your boss is putting more on your plate and everybody's complaining because you work as unto the Lord? You know where your check comes from. And you know that he's the one who sets up kings and takes them down. And so it's, it's easy to get stressed out when you just see your boss in the company, but if you say, Lord, I'm looking for a new job, but help me to work as if you're my boss, because you are. It means that no matter what I do, I do it for the Lord. That's why I often tell you either everything is sacred or nothing is sacred. When done for Christ, beloved, when done for Christ, the smallest task can be an act of worship. Changing the paper and the copy machine can become a holy act of worship if done for Christ. Sweeping the floor can be an act of worship if done with the heart posture for Christ. Arguing about status and where you are shows that your heart isn't focused on Christ. Anything is either sacred or not. The greatest honor and the greatest privilege that you could have, beloved, is pointing people to Christ. And I want to encourage you, it's never too late to start living a Christ-centered life. Scripture says, his mercies are new each morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, I was a jerk this week, you could say. But today, help me to focus on you. Help me to get my eyes fixed back on you. Our main desires as pastors and as elders is to glorify and enjoy Christ and to help you do the same. This is what we mean when we say that we believe in the value of having a Christ-centered culture. It means all roads leads to Christ. The service leads to Christ. Thank you for the birthday. I appreciate that. But the roads lead to Christ. The ministries, the church, the outreach, everything that people do together is to point to Christ. We are... As a people, as a church, deeply committed to Christ, he is our identity. He is our purpose and why we exist. And so we believe that all Christians are worship leaders. And God has placed you where you are on that street at that job to point people to the way, the truth, and the life. But not only that, here's the second thing that we find, if you could turn to 2 Timothy, that all scripture is written by God. All scripture is written by God. Where do we get that from? 2 Timothy 3, 
16 and 17. We're going to look at the first part, and it says this here. This is Paul writing to Timothy as a young pastor, and he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Let's just stop there. Let's just stop there. This is amazing. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Notice the, notice the word that Paul says here. He says, all Scripture. Not some Scripture, all Scripture. The Greek literally says, all Scripture is God-breathed. Did you know that this is the only place in the New Testament where these two combinations of words are found in the Greek? God, the word theos, and breath. This is known as the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. It means that what you hold here is inspired by God himself. That yes, Paul was writing, but somehow miraculously the Spirit was working through Paul. How exactly God did this, we will not know until heaven, but we can get a glimpse into his process from our brother Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture come from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but holy men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it means that over the course of a few thousand years, the 66 books that make up the Bible, God wrote a book. He's an author. You like writing? Who better to learn from? He's the way. That God wrote a book using shepherds, military leaders, prophets, blue-collared fishermen, medical doctors like Luke, and others as vessels to write one cohesive book over thousands of years that sync together perfectly. And so what you hold in your hand, or what you have on your phone, for the cell phone Bible, brothers and sisters, is a translation of the original manuscripts. And so when we say that God has inspired or he has breathed this, we're talking about the original manuscript. So you can know for certain that what you have in your hand is truly the word of God, written by God, namely Christ himself, because he is the word. In fact, John 1, 1 says this, in the beginning was the what? And the word was with God and the word was God. John 1, 14, and the word became Flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love that. So, Scripture was written by Jesus about Jesus. The goal of everything points to Jesus. When you read this, it's all pointing to him, and Jesus said it himself. It's amazing. When you read in Luke 24, after the resurrection, it says Jesus is walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're traveling to Emmaus, so they got a few hours to walk. And look what it says here. This is Jesus after he's resurrected. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Listen to this. Jesus has come out of the tomb. He's resurrected. He's walking with two disciples. They don't recognize who he is. And it says, and beginning with Moses, that's Genesis. And all the prophets, all the way to Malachi, they don't have the New Testament yet. It said he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, every single book, the things concerning him. So that means beginning in Genesis, all the way to Revelations, all 66 books in the Bible are pointing to Christ. Yes. 
Did you know that? Do you believe that? In Genesis, he is the creator of the universe. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb slain for us and the God who sets the captives free. In Leviticus, he's the very essence of holiness. In Numbers, he is the God who guides his people through the wilderness. In Deuteronomy, he is the covenant keeper who never goes back on his promise. In Joshua, he's the God who conquers his enemies. In Judges, he's the righteous judge and lawgiver who rescues his people in spite of their ignorance. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, he is the seed of David. In 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, he is our reigning king who rules his people in righteousness. In Ezra, he's our faithful scribe and teacher. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of everything that is broken. In Esther, he is our Mordecai and our advocate for such a time as this. In Job, he's the one who restores his people in their grief. In the Psalms, he is our shepherd we shall not want. In the Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's, in Ecclesiastes, he's the purpose and meaning of life. In Songs of Solomon, he's the loving bridegroom who melts our hearts. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace and the one who was wounded for our transgressions and pierced for our iniquities. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the glorious Lord and the river of life that brings healing to the nations. In Daniel, he's the God who is willing to get into the fire with us. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband who pursues his unfaithful bride. In Joel, he is the one who restores the years that the locust has eaten. In Amos, he is the one who carries our burdens as we experience injustice. In Obadiah, he is the judge who, who judges those who do evil. In Jonah, he is the prophet who preaches to those who've persecuted him. In Micah, he's the ruler of the world born in Bethlehem. In Nahum, he's our stronghold and protection from the enemy. In Habakkuk, he is the God whose presence shakes the earth and who revives his people when their wells run dry. In Zephaniah, he is the one mighty to save. In Haggai, he is the one who restores us to right worship. In Zechariah, he's the branch of David and the one pierced that every eye will see when he returns. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. That's the God we serve, beloved. Oh, no, but it gets better. Yes, it gets better. In Matthew, he's the king of the Jews and the Messiah to come. In Mark, he's the suffering servant that washes the feet of his betrayers before going to the cross. In Luke, he's the baby born in the manger and the son of man. In John, he is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. In Acts, he's the one who builds his church. In Romans, he's the one who justifies, who shall accuse you. In 1 Corinthians, he is the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he's always leading us in triumphal possession, as we, send, as we spread the fragrance of his knowledge everywhere. In Galatians, he is freedom, because who the Son has set free is free indeed. In Ephesians, he is the head of the church in our armor that protects us from the scheme of the enemy. In Philippians, he is our joy in the midst of sorrow and pain. In Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God and the one who holds all things together. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he's the coming king. In 1st and 2nd Timothy, he is the one mediator between God and man. In Titus, he is our faithful pastor. 
And Philemon, he's the one who gets two enemies to reconcile. In Hebrews, he's our great high priest. In James, he is the power behind our faith because faith without works is dead. In 1 Peter, he is our chief shepherd and the chief cornerstone. In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he is love, truth, and everlasting life. And in the book of Jude, he is the one who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the glory of his presence with great joy. And in Revelations, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All of Scripture, every drop of it is written by Jesus and about Jesus. The goal of preaching isn't simply so you would be encouraged, it's so that you would worship. Preaching is about worship. People repent so they can worship. They get encouraged so they can go worship. The goal of preaching, this is not the end of itself. It's to make hearts worship. Maybe you thought worship was just singing. No, offer your body as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. Oh, how you act throughout the week, why you do what you do, that is worship. Everything in Scripture is meant to point you to Jesus and help you to look like Jesus. So here at Chicago West Bible Church, as elders and pastors, we believe that all 66 books as found in Scripture is 100% inspired by and written by God, and that everything in it points to Jesus, from Genesis to the last word in Revelation. Everything is written about him. And so our first value as a church is that we have a Christ-centered and Bible-teaching culture. All Christians are worship leaders, and all Scripture is written by God. But here's the last and third point. All of Scripture is meant to equip us. Notice what it says Scripture does in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the Word of God points to Christ and conforms us to the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. This isn't just another book. It's alive. The Spirit is working through this. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why you can read something, and you like, man, God is speaking to the depths of my soul. No, it's just words on a page. No, it's not. The Spirit is working. But look at what it says it does. The Word of God is profitable for teaching. That means for educating you, helping you to learn more information. Paul had to tell the believers that you got to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It means everything you was taught about love, finances, God, marriage, all got to be uh, tweaked and changed. And so when it says it's, it's there to teach you, how do you know what it means to live godly as a single or as a husband or a wife or to respect or honor your parents or how to navigate your finances or what's your motivation? How would you know that unless he teaches you the ways of the kingdom? It says for reproof. Next, you see it there. I'm reading from the ESV. 
The Greek word there for reproof means a sharp criticism to disapprove. It means God isn't afraid to tell you about yourself. He's not a yes man. Your daddy loves you, but people who love you will tell you the truth. In fact, it says love doesn't rejoice in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Notice it says not just for reproof, but correction. I love this here. That Greek word correction means to restore to an upright position or to restore to a right state. That's what the word would mean. Maybe you hear the word correction and that word brings a lot of pain. You see this punishment. No, the word correction here means to restore to an upright position. Let me give you an example. So last week, Sam and I was in here uh, setting everything up, and we were putting the TVs up. And after we put it up and I was getting off the stage, Sam was like, no, can you stay right there? I was like, wow. He was like, can you just kind of turn the TV a little bit this way? It's kind of off. So like, I'm like, like this, and I'm tapping the TV, and I'm trying to get it straight. You ever walked in and like the picture frame is like this? What do you do? You fix it. You're correcting it. Are you mad at it? No. Do you hate it? No. You're just correcting it. So when it says for correction, it means God is trying to restore you to the proper state. Scripture helps you to do that. Notice what it says next, and for training in righteousness. Now, the Greek word here for training comes from the same word that we get child from. It's the idea that you are a babe in Christ and must be trained. Here's a spiritual lesson. Your age on earth doesn't equate to your spiritual maturity. And what happens, you think, well, I'm 45, I'm 40, I'm 60. You could be 45 and still a babe in Christ. That's what it means here in training and righteousness, the idea of training a child. Now, the thing is, physically, with age, you get older. You're 10, you're 20, you're 30, you're 40. Spiritually, you only mature as you train and grow in the spirit. So you could be stagnant here spiritually and be celebrating a birthday every year. Now, there's wisdom in age, life experience, but it doesn't equal maturity. Do you have the humility some of the older saints, to be discipled by someone younger than you. Missionaries overseas have had the thought about that. How do you disciple people in the village when they all could be your grandfather? But they need to be discipled. Paul mentions here that we need training. And that's what we're talking about when we say equipping. It's making sure that you are growing spiritually. And look at the results. Look at the results. Verse 17 that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That word complete there means able to meet all demands. That's what I mean. So you have a lot of people who have been walking with Christ for 20, 30 years but never been discipled. And so what we want to equip you is because we want you to be equipped and complete for every good work. Are you complete? Do you know what to do? Do you know how to pray? Do you know what to do when you don't know what to do, which is pray? And this is why Jesus commanded us to make disciples, to help fellow believers become complete and equipped for every good work. So often, beloved, when we come to our Bibles, we come looking for comfort, which is good. That's why we love the Psalms. We, want to, we need a word to encourage. I need some hope for today. Rarely do we read the word for instruction, equipping, and training. Lord, I need to know how to think at this job. I, know how to, I need to learn how to be a better parent. I need to learn how to be a better steward. I need to learn how to be a better neighbor. God, I'm not just coming for comfort. You're going to comfort me, but I need to be trained. 
Our heart here is to make sure that you are being equipped and trained. So here's some practical steps as we prepare to close the service. Some practical things you could do right now to be equipped. One, join a community group. Get around some other men or women. Dive into the word. Who are you breaking the word down with each week? I know our group is going through the book of James. We just started. We just trust in the spirit to help us break down the word and learn together. Who are you doing that with? Men, didn't we have a great time yesterday? Right? Processing a lot of things. That's part of equipping. Our women's ministry has an event coming up. It was highlighted earlier. What is the topic again? Laying aside shame, right? How many of you sisters can't even think about the concept of equipping because you're so gripped by shame? Shame because of your sin struggles? Shame because of things you've done? Shame because of things wrongly done to you? What happened if you filled up that that session and said, man, Lord, I want to show up. Would you equip me, help me to get some healing so this won't be a roadblock? God, I haven't been able to grow in this area because shame has had me in bondage. Youth ministry. You know the youth ministry is going through the whole book of Luke? You got teenagers that need to be equipped, send them to youth ministry. They're going through the whole book of Luke. Children's ministry. They're studying up there. They're not up there just baby. They're not babysitting. They're studying the word. That's why I like to serve up there. They up there memorizing scripture and praying for each other when the person didn't memorize it. That's why Jesus said y'all should be more like the children. <laughs> We've had financial classes. One of our deacons, right? Zach has taught that. Why? Because so many people grew up like my mom and dad never really taught me how to budget and make it. You know, I got all this student loan. I never really thought about all this. That's equipping you. When you're going through it, you don't think about it, but that's equipping you. So would you, would you prayerfully consider stepping into opportunities coming? Also, opportunities to equip others. Right now, there are opportunities for you to help equip others. Both our youth ministry and our children's ministry are looking for Bible teachers. Do you have the gift of teaching? Our children's ministry, ages 3 to 5, are learning about the life of Joseph right now. You bring any kid here that's between the ages of three and five, they're going to be learning about Joseph up there. Our elementary classroom, meaning our first graders, the fifth graders, they're good. we go through the Bible every year, but currently they are studying the life of Jesus through a series called Let's Face It. That's what they're studying up there right now. They're doing a series called Let's Face It. The series Let's Face It is used to discuss the painfully honest reality of how sin affects us and those around us but also how Jesus has the power to forgive and change our lives. I wish when I was in first grade, somebody had the humility and the free schedule to come tell me about the devastation of sin. That's what's going on up there right now. This Sunday, they're actually learning about the story of Jesus and Matthew, the tax collector, and that Jesus came to save sinners, and that therefore you can follow Jesus even though we have sinned. Let me ask you a question. Will you serve? Do you have the gift or desire to teach? And maybe you say, well, man, I don't really know. I, gotta, I didn't go to seminary. You don't have to go to seminary. In fact, Pastor Kent and I will be doing a workshop at the end of this month for those who will be teaching there to help you think through how to outline and good resources for you to use. And so here at Chicago West Bible Church, as pastors and elders, 
We seek to cultivate an environment and culture in which men, women, and children are shaped, comforted, challenged, and equipped by the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. The first thing that we value is a Christ-centered and Bible-teaching culture. And so as we close out and our worship team comes up, um, would you pray for what I just shared? Jesus says, right, that the harvest is plentiful, but the labor is a few. That is true out there, but it also happens in here. Kids up there dying to read the word. Who's going to go and teach them? So would you just bow your heads right now? Would you just pray? I want to lead you in time of prayer. Would you just pause right now? I want to start with Christ-centered. Would you just ask the Lord, Lord, are you the center of my life? I want you to think about that purpose. The purpose of my life is to... What would you say right now? What's the purpose of this week? If you haven't been in the Word lately, and we talk about being a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching culture, right? You saw how we show that in every book Jesus is there. Would you ask him to renew in you a hunger for, your, for the word? Be honest, Lord, I have it. Like, I look at your word and it dulls me. Or I'm so routine with it. Lord, I confess, Lord, I have so much head knowledge. Very little application. And I'm too proud to admit it. Because everybody sees me as a spiritual giant. I haven't shared my faith in a long time. I don't like serving. I love when people serve me. Lord, confess that right now. Lord, give me a hunger for your word again. Did you say that to him? And now would you pray? Lord, would you direct me to where you would have for me to be equipped in this church? If you're a sister here, Lord, help me to go. I don't even want to go to that women's event. I don't even know nobody there. Maybe you got beef with somebody there. I don't know. Lord, I'm tired of playing games. I'm tired of circling around the same mountain. Lord, give me that hunger. Give me that passion. Make it sweeter. And then would you, would you pray finally that God would raise up men and women here? to use their gifts to be a blessing there's future mothers and fathers upstairs future doctors and lawyers teachers will you take the time to lay down your pride and your schedule and give up a Sunday to teach them the pains of sin but the beauty of Christ might save somebody from ending up in prison one day your act of faith.